Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. You can find Soul of a Nation on iTunes, Google Play, and on sojo.net. For more news, resources, and reflections on the nation's moral and health crisis, visit sojo.net. Today, I am delighted to be speaking with W. Franklin Richardson about his new book entitled Witness to Grace, and don't we need that today, Witness to Grace, and his important leadership during this time. W. Franklin Richardson is senior pastor of Grace Baptist Church in the city of Mount Vernon, New York, and chairman of the board of Virginia Union University, his alma mater. He also serves as chairman of the boards of the National Action Network and the Conference of National Black Churches. Richardson earned his divinity degree from Yale University Divinity School and his doctor of ministry as a Wyatt T. Walker Fellow from United Theological Seminary in Dayton, Ohio. Mentored by Dr. Sandy Ray, a close friend of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and Dr. Wyatt T. Walker, Dr. King's chief of staff, an amazing leader in his own right. Richardson has received numerous honors and accolades. Two notable distinctions include induction into the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Board of Preachers and the International Hall of Honor by Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. He is also a recipient of the Alumni Award for Distinction in Congregational Ministry from Yale University. Dr. Richardson is married to Inez Nunali Richardson, and they live in New York. My brother, thank you for joining us today. I'm delighted to be here, Jim. You know, it's a pleasure to be in your presence. Your career and your life has had positive influence on the body of Christ. Well, my brother, how is your, let's start with this. How is your spirit today? Well, I have to, I have to acknowledge, you know, you might, you might, some people might say, well, Oh, I'm not doing good. Or they reflect the darkness of the times, or they reflect how uh, their own fears and apprehension. I really want you to know. I don't know how to how to explain it, but I have a sense of peace, a sense of optimism, a sense of hope that is very alive in my life, and it's and I feel fulfilled as I am seeking to be of assistance in transforming the times and lifting people who are challenged. So I, I really. I'm in a blessed spirit right now, and uh, it may seem contradictory to the times, but in my life, I've understood that sometimes our darkest hours can be our brightest hours. Well, that's part of your blessing to us. It really, really is. Thank you for that. In your book, Witness to Grace, you write, quote, in recent days, the hidden hate residing in pockets of America's collective consciousness has resurfaced emboldened by the rhetoric and policies of the Trump administration. A significant segment of white Americans carry the poison of racial hate in their hearts. Let me hasten to say, you say, the obvious, not every white person is racist, yet every white person benefits from the privilege that is the consequence of systemic racism and every black person is disadvantaged by it, while visible nonviolent protest must remain in our arsenal as we verbally and visibly 
reject injustice, we must continue to equip ourselves with preparation, I like this, preparation and determination to overcome the disadvantages that are the byproduct of racial attitudes. Powerful, powerful word. Say more about how this moment may be a turning point, hopefully a turning point in the conscience of our country when it comes to race. And what does the preparation and determination that you mentioned look like in practice? Well, I think it's important to, it's easy to be uh, passive, passively uh, emotional and optimistic uh, because we, we kind of live in that kind of hope, right? We live in hope. Um, but when you look at the, the journey of <clears throat> racism in America or the journey of the African-Americans victimized by racism, we have often had high moments to be followed by very challenging moments. We've had high moments of affirmation and then moments of, uh, of, of uh, negativism, uh, which, which are highlighted by you on one moment, you, you have passed the Emancipation Proclamation and then 12 years later you have post-reconstruction and take all the rights that you gave away. And, and that just, that cycle continues to be and latest manifested in the fact that Barack Obama was elected president, the first black president in the history of the world, of the country, and um, served two terms and served with credibility, with no blemishes of corruption and, 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 and lifted hope in the, in the community. Certainly was hope in the African-American community. And I always say it was hope in a lot of other communities because it was kind of rejoicing that finally we're getting out of these woods, you know, finally we're breaking through. We, you know, when Barack was elected, people say, well, I'm never, it's never going to go back to what it was. Right. But then there came as a result of that, a resurgence of something we thought we had gotten rid of. And that resurgence was the election of Donald J. Trump as president and his assault and egregious behavior regarding, um, hate regarding discrimination and putting down people and a sense of corruption and a sense of assault on 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 dif- difference an assault on difference assault on gender or just a, a, a assault on faith and to be joined by what is this what I mentioned in the book this kind of uh, subtle hidden uh, hostility that we thought well I did I thought it was much gone. I didn't think America was, I didn't think the segment of America that affirmed uh, Donald Trump was as large and as energized as it was about about him. That was surprising to me. I I, I really gave us credit for being much further down the road. I always knew there was a pocket, but I didn't know the pocket was so substantial and that the pocket was so uh, determined. I mean, even after the insurrection, there's this... uh, abiding loyalty that, uh, so so for me, I want to be excited about this moment. I'm excited about uh, Biden's uh, calm and effective approach, his heart's in the right place, acknowledgement of it. But I also am always reminded that we've often had this ebb and flow, this mountains and valleys. And I, I guess that's the topography of human existence that the mountains, your comments remind me of uh, of election night in 2008 in my house here in Washington, D.C., just off 14th Street. And I had a house full of young people, 
just a house full of young people. And they were just out in the streets celebrating. And even before it was finally announced, but I was the last one in the house watching the news reports. And I, I was kind of like all the old folks in D.C. wasn't really sure this would happen in my lifetime, to be honest. You know? And I'm watching this Pennsylvania, I believe, that finally came down in behalf of Obama. And I was by myself in the house. The others are all out celebrating in the streets. And I, I just sat there and wept. I just couldn't believe it had happened in my lifetime. But then I went out and joined the kids in the streets. But you're right. Uh, ebb and flow is one word to describe it. But, but double down really is another word to describe it. When there's progress made, the other side, uh, white supremacy really does double down. And that's what happened with Donald Trump. They doubled down to try and turn that progress back. So when I make reference to preparation, I'm really talking about being competent. I mean, I think one of the things that African-Americans have to resolve is a high degree of preparation that includes accelerated competence. We got to work at being performers and being educated and being uh, and lifting values and being faithful. So I think the, the preparation is that. The preparation is a resolve to not uh, be deterred. I guess the greatest legacy of the African-American struggle in these 400 years is that the determination of African-American people to seek full inclusion in the society has not been detoured, not, not, not by the strange fruit on the trees, not by dogs biting, not by hoses pouring in, not by even the rhetoric of President of the United States in modern time. So that I think that is a great legacy. And in fact, those same old black folks in D.C. who were as surprised as I was, Barack Obama, finally first president, black president of the United States, they're the ones who know what it means to uh, deal with that that double down, that ebb and flow, and never be deterred, never be deterred and never give up no matter what happens. So one of the ways we've seen that, again, you mentioned how the Trump administration has just brought out that way, what you call that, that underlying poison always there in American white society. Uh, now this uh, heartbreaking recent violence in Atlanta against Asian Americans, uh, it just sickens our hearts. And again, because of the way that this president uh, uh, tried to, to turn us against Asian Americans in light right. of the pandemic. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I was in a press conference this morning with my Asian brothers and sisters in, in Manhattan, where we had a press conference uh, speaking out against um, uh, Asian Pacific Island hate. Uh, you know, New York is a very com uh, complex place, large uh, uh, Asian community. And before this, before yesterday, that we have seen manifestations of this uh, new emerging articulated hate against Asians. And it's been alarm, it's been, it's been emerging in, in New York. I mean, in the streets, in the subways, Asians have been attacked, uh, assaulted, just, and we've been seeing it. And then this thing happened yesterday, which is the uh, ultimate apex of this expression of hate. Uh, and yes, I, I'm, I agree with you. I think it is grounded in the behavior of the last four years. I think uh, it is uh, people, uh, you know, people 
understanding the signals that the administration sent. And um, I, let me tell you what I think. Um, I think this um, Trump element is really afraid of the browning of America. And I, th- and I think they see that this may be the last attempt uh, to retard um, the dominance, uh, you know, a, a minority majority emerging. And, uh, and this, it's very it's un, uh, unstabling and it's very threatening for some people. Uh, my advice would be that, you know, let's, let's decide that we're going to all live here together and, 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 and level the playing ground. But some people really have real uh, attached ownership to uh, the imbalance. <laughs> They're not looking for a balance. They're looking for to continue the imbalance, those uh, white supremacy and the privilege. And um, I, I don't think it can win. I, that's one thing I don't believe. I don't think I don't think it's going to win. I think it's just going to be a struggle for us. We're going to we're going to have to struggle with it and try to uh, win people. Uh, let me tell you, you said it's about young people. I really, really have a lot of hope in the next generation <laughs> around this around this issue. You know, I look at my grandchildren and uh, even my children. Uh, you know, I, it's a whole different uh, viewing of each other. You know what I'm saying? And they don't they don't really have heavy baggage. They may got some light baggage, but they don't have heavy baggage in in the areas of race and the whole area. And it's, it's because the technological intervention is also the sharing of information and the whole need for each other. And now, and you can live your whole life in America today, and not people not even know what color you are if you if you operate from the net in the internet. So it's uh, interesting. I think you're right, and I I I, uh, I we celebrated one my youngest son's 18th birthday yesterday, and and my 21 year old is here too because of the pandemic. It's been a silver lining to have them together to bond with each other and be with me and joy. But every night they have these conversations about actually what it means to refound or found again this nation. Uh, Eddie Glaude talks about the need for a third founding, a re-refounding. And that's what their conversation's about night after night. And I'm just blessed to hear to hear that conversation. Um, and so, you know, I often say what it really is, is there's a strategy, uh, I'll have to say, on the Republican side to to try and prevent changing demography from changing democracy. They, they can't stop changing demography, as you say, but they want to keep that from changing our democracy. Yes, yes. And they can't, they can't. do that. It's, it's overwhelming. And these, these, it's amazing how you get stuck in a particular slot and you don't, and you don't want to open up to what's real. So you, you hold on to uh, a life raft to try to hope that you can outlive the you can outlive the oceans well, you know. <laughs> At another point in your book, you talk about the story of Amadou Diallo shot nineteen times by New York police officers, and how you and the Reverend Al Sharpton were arrested for peacefully protesting. I'm sure that's not the only time you've been arrested. No. <laughs> but let, let's say more about that experience. What did you feel and what do you think about the way forward now should be for black people 
who continue to face violence at the hands of the police. Well, um, uh, that was a very moving moment in my life. Uh, Y.T. Walker was with us. The three of us got uh, arrested together. And uh, it was the beginning of the protest. You know, we decided, we went downtown the Wall Street area and decided we were going to get arrested. We went down and said, well, we got to bring attention to this. It's not going anywhere. And so we just stood in the middle of the street and wouldn't get out of the way. And the police were called and they ultimately arrested us. And the next day, hundreds, if not thousands, appeared in the street. And that went on for 30 days. I mean, everybody in New York City who had any sense of integrity or consciousness came and got arrested, including Mayor Dinkins, including, I mean, just on and on and on it evolved. Uh, but I tell you, um, I think uh, what I would say to this is that people, that we are, that, that, that our response to the racism in the society, whether it's the police department or other places, is somewhat different because our position of resourcefulness and knowledge and accumulated achievement has made other avenues available to us. So we continue to march, we continue to protest, but at the same time, we got now, I think it's approaching 60 blacks in the United States House. Uh, House of Representatives and the Congress. And then we got um, the the largest voter turnout by African-Americans in the history of the country in the last election. So we got, we got some tools that we didn't, 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 sometimes we, we underused or that did not even exist. There's some fresh tools in our toolbox. Um, we have a more educated populace we do have concentrations of wealth in the hands and influence of wealth uh, by African-Americans, some of the corporate headquarters, some, some black billionaires who have emerged. Uh, so there is, there are more tools in the box. And I think, and then also I think we've gotten greater bridges and affirmation to, to pockets of the white community. There were, uh, a lot of white people are aligned with, the vision of a world where all people are uh, equal and are treated as human beings and not determined on a gender or a race. So we got new fresh tools. So while we still do the protests, because they keep alive the fervor, but we got some tools that are, that are changing America. And, and part of the tools show up when the president of the United States gets inaugurated, Biden, and he says, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for the black vote. You know, that that's that's the indication that some new tools are at, at work, right? And he's accountable. I got to meet Y.T. Walker a few times and your mentor, he was an amazing leader all by himself. And, and he would he would talk about how movements are always outside and inside. It's almost it's almost a dance, an outside inside dance where you have tools on the inside and tools on the outside, as you're describing so well here. And now we have more tools on the inside, but we have also more energy on the outside. And now the streets are full of multiracial protesters like we've never seen before. Yes, yes, yes. You know, uh, Wyatt and I, <laughs> I came to New York. I met Wyatt when I was at uh, Virginia Union and I was a freshman. And there comes into our campus 
or the word was coming that Dr. Y.T. Walker, former uh, chief of staff Martin Luther King, pastor of Harlem Church and former advisor to Rockefeller, he was coming to campus. And so the dean asked me and my dear friend Dwight Jones to go and meet Dr. Walker. And what a privilege it was. We drove to the airport and brought him in. And uh, long story short, we became friends from that hour. And um, I got called to come to New York to be pastor. And naturally, it was a reunion for he and I. And I guess I was in New York one year. No, not even quite a year. So maybe a little more. Uh, 79, I think. Maybe maybe not then. But he I had he got me locked up. Protested <laughs> <laughs> apartheid in, in South Africa. And uh, so uh, he has been that kind of uh, challenging. He, he, he offered for me uh, global consciousness. I mean, he was a citizen of the globe. I served on the Central Committee of World Council Churches for seven years. And, uh, and he, he um, I appointed him, got him appointed over the uh, Commission on Racism. He thought that was the best thing in the world. And, and here I was, one of his mentees offering that. But so, yes, um, he, he had some great insights and, uh, and, and courageous and, and experienced. Well, as we've all learned, getting locked up together can be a bonding experience. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. I remember sure. at, uh, at uh, I was I got to blessed to be at your uh, Black Church conference, and I remember being at dinner with you and uh, Al Sharpton, and clearly uh, uh, there's a deep bond there between the two of you, and uh, you got locked up together at this protest a long time ago, so. There's a there's an argument for how being locked up together bonds you forever. Oh, it has therapeutic value. <laughs> so, what has it been like for you to be a leader in the black community, especially being a pastor during these pandemic times? There's been a lot of conversation about equitable access to vaccinations and how access for people of color is insufficient. And you and I are working together on part of a multi faith effort for houses of worship to become vaccination sites. And the church you serve in Mount Vernon, New York, is one such site. And you and I have talked about uh, the support you've received specifically for black churches to help lead this fight to ensure equity of vaccine distribution and administration. Can you share more about those efforts? Yeah, I'm I'm deeply uh, engaged in that. I guess, you know, when you have an appetite for... um, fighting for people and representing their best interests, you always find yourself in the middle of something, you know. And so uh, when the issue of vaccination rose up, we began to speak about how likely without in, less, without some in, in some in insertion, it would be distributed in, um, in an imbalanced way. And so I, I expressed that, uh, end up the governor put me on the commission for the state for, um, equal distribution of the vaccines. And then naturally we began to make sure that in the community, we had it in the churches. So as a matter of fact, governor's coming here on Monday to church uh, to announce that Grace is gonna be a more permanent uh, center for vaccinations. We did, we're gonna do 500 next week and we're gonna use Johnson Johnson. But that's the kind of local activity. But what what you make reference to is the Conference of National Black Churches uh, has uh, gotten a partnership with, or have been approached. We were approached by the CDC 
uh, who owned, I want to really say this, they own the fact that they had not done a good job. They in, do. You're right. They educating, do. Educating. Yeah, right? They indeed do, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing. And uh, so they asked us to participate. We designed a program called Safe, Safe, I mean, Trusted Voices, Trusted Content, and Trusted Spaces. Yeah. And uh, as a result, we rolled out, uh, we're going to train 3,000 pastors uh, extensively in vaccinations and in the the arguments against vaccinations, the science behind it, the history of misuse of vaccinations. We hope to give these pastors a very thorough uh, undergoing. So they're trusted voice. So the trusted voices are the pastors. Pastors in the Black community are overwhelmingly trusted voices. They yeah, and so if, if the people will trust the pastors. If we can give the pastors trusted information, then they will trust what they say. And that's being prepared by a team of doctors and input from uh, black medical schools where the cu- curriculum for this uh, training is being developed. We'll have 3,000 pastors. There are 30,000 churches in the Conference of National Black Churches loosely gathered. And so we decided to go for 10%, 3,000 pastors who get training. Um, go back into their communities. We will also give equip them with uh, materials, both technological equip, uh, t- materials as well as print media to uh, help re-educate. What I discovered, Jim, in our community is a terrible level of resistance to the vaccine. I mean, I, I never thought it was as bad until we started this project. Uh, how I'm, I'm really afraid of how the lack of the hate, the lack of trust in the system, the lack of 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 uh, I mean, and the presence of fear, and the and the possession of misinformation, has set us up to be a, a disadvantaged population as relates to the distribution of the vaccine. So there must be an aggressive uh, attempt to educate, retrain debunk uh, conspiracy theories uh, aside from making the material. So, 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 so this, this, this idea is to make information available, make pastors, make it freely and totally available in our community. You gotta, you gotta compete against negative information. You gotta compete against it. You just can't, you know, so, and so then finally we have what we call trusted spaces, which is we working with, with, um, uh, Walmart to put churches, uh, to open churches in pharmacy deserts in the rural communities where African-Americans live and make those churches uh, distribution centers so that our population is. So it's a real aggressive uh, attempt to try to make sure we, at the end of the day, we don't come up on the short end of the stick. Everybody else in the community, uh, in the nation, uh, uh, vaccinated and our community still not. And then our approach is not just for COVID. You know, COVID, one of the things that COVID did, it unearthed a lot of um, inequities that had been covered up. It revealed and, them, uh, just revealed them. Yes, revealed, that's even a better one. Revealed them. And you know, uh, one of them is what CDC says, is that not only the COVID vaccine, but the disbalance, the imbalance of vaccinations of blacks as opposed to whites on, on all vaccines. What, so what does that mean? That ensures that if whites get the vaccine and blacks don't, 
the disease level and the health issues are going to be much more exaggerated in blacks than they are in whites. And so what you got to do is you got to face this and you see you got the Tuskegee experiment. Certainly it's uh, added to this. You got the Loretta Locke uh, notion. There are many things that happen along the way that have created this uh, sense of distrust. So you got to you got to unwrap that. You got to you got to get you got to get preachers and leaders to know that know that story. Don't cover it up. Know it so you can help people to understand why it happened and what happened. And, you know. So it's a real uh, challenge. It's a mountain to climb, but I th- I feel very. I think we got a real uh, qualitative approach to it. I think no one is more trusted in our community than pastors, and um, if we can if we can equip them with the knowledge and information, I think it can make a difference. That's so exciting because there's reason, historical reason for distrust, as you just began to to articulate, and not just historical, but a, a, a health industry that still yes. has systemic racism built into yes. the structure of it. Yes. So yes. what you're doing is so exciting. I, I would call it uh, trusted locations for trusted mm-hmm. vocations. <laughs> yeah. I like that, Doc. And you know you're a wordsmith. <laughs> people need both, and that's what you're doing. Yes. And isn't it nice when the government realizes they're not doing something right, admit it, and then come to the faith, you say, help, help us correct this. That, isn't that a nice thing? That's right. That's powerful, man. That's powerful. So recently there was a PBS series released on the Black Church. And as a leader within the Black Church, what are your thoughts and reflections on that series? So I thought it was very powerful. And what are the things that came out from that impressive documentary that Americans need to learn about the Black Church in this country? I think it, is, it was a wonderful uh, intentioned and wonderfully presented uh, story or telling of the black church's role in the long journey of uh, our presence in this country. A couple of wonderful things I thought was that black religion, black, blacks were not converted to Christianity but blacks converted Christianity. That's exactly right. <laughs> I think that is just so accurate because the Christianity that black people had as opposed to the black uh, Christianity of the plantation owner was two different two different worlds. And um, so the African slave who comes to the United States takes and reinterprets the scripture. He's handed uh, leftover Christology by the plantations intended to uh, make him docile and make him calm and make him postpone any earthly uh, achievement or accomplishment. Yet they take that leftover tri- uh, uh, Christology and the secondhand, secondhand Christianity and, uh, and they couple it with the rhythmic leftovers of their uh, tribal religion and come up with a theology of survival. What a marvelous idea. And I think he captured that. I thought that was very important. Um, and you know, when you do some pieces like this, there's always room for a critique because you know, he w- it was a four hour presentation and it, and it didn't get, um, and there are pieces of the story that, that did, not get a, get, did not get told. So that's always the danger when you're trying to tell, tell such a big piece of history. Uh, I think he did a, a credible job. Um, I, I, I'm aware of 
you know, in our community, uh, I'm aware of a, uh, uh, quite a few critiques of it. Uh, uh, but it was important. It was important. It, it, it was a human, it was a human effort. That means it's not perfect. Um, it's, it was uh, inspirational. It was telling to people who had never known the stories. So I, I think, and, 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 you know, he's a good man. Uh, so uh, uh, I think, I think by and large, it was, it was a step forward in the long journey of telling the story of how African-Americans survived in all the hostilities and the evolutions of, of uh, this American history. Yeah, Dr. Henry Lewis Gates is indeed a, indeed a good man. And I, I was really struck by how he said there was a division among some of the slaveholders about whether uh, black souls were worth saving and some thought they weren't, and some thought they were. But if they were saving, you got to keep parts of the Bible from them or the stuff about Jesus, because it might lead them to think about their own freedom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's where they failed, Doc. We, 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 we got hold to that. That was something. That was, we got hold to, got hold to Jesus. That was, That's all we needed. <laughs> and as you know, my own story in, in Detroit when I was a teenage kid and uh, listening to my city for the first time and reading the papers and something really big and something really bad seemed to be wrong that nobody would talk about in my white church and white school, white neighborhood. And I had this Bible in front of me and nobody would talk about that until I went in, as we'd say back then, to the city and met the black churches who told me about what this Bible said that I'd been raised with. But there are parts <laughs> that they were keeping from me as well. And so I, I learned those other parts of the Bible in Jesus in those black churches in Detroit, which oh, changed man. the rest of my life. Yeah. Yeah. So your book is entitled Witness to Grace. Um, share a personal story about how you have been, uh, how you have, have been a witness to grace in your life. What have, what, what's the personal story about that grace in your own life? Okay. Well, let me I think the most pressing one is, first of all, I, my whole life has been this notion of what I view as a favor, to, a favor, a favor, a testimony of favor, because I have all along the way, when I've needed them, the Lord has provided powerful mentors. And those mentors have been expressions of God's grace. I knew they were there, but I also knew who had sent them. And, and I guess at the heart of my notion about grace is to be captured in this story. I was I was gradu I graduated from West Philadelphia High School. My my counselor told me I was not college material, Mr. Driven. I'll never forget it. And he was right. I, I but I insisted determined to go to college. I went into West West Philadelphia Community College. I flunked out the first semester. I didn't understand because I doing the same thing I had been doing in the in the high school. Come to understand as time went on that I was being socially promoted and didn't necessarily uh, get the skills I should have gotten. And so by the time I got to 12th grade, I'd only read one book in my whole life. Uh, I remember though, it was Tale of Two Cities. And um, I uh, accepted my call to ministry early and decided to my pastor that I wanted to go, I wanted to be a prepared preacher. And he said, well, uh, and I told him, I said, I flunked out of the community college. And he said, well, I think you applied to Virginia Union. So long story short, Virginia Union uh, accepted me on conditional uh, matriculation. 
They recognized I could not read, but they put me in remediation. They said after a year in remediation, if you do well, you can stay. And so I did well. And by God's grace, I graduated, went on a year, went on all over the world. And 35, 40 years, 40 years later, I ended up being a kid who was a conditional matriculant, ends up signing every degree of everybody who graduates for the last 15 years. Oh, my. Chairman of the board. <laughs> That's grace. It is grace. That's it grace. grace. Well, there's something about the name of your church, my friend, Grace Baptist Church. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> I got the right person in the right role. I've been, I've been here 46 years. You just years. can't leave that place. <laughs> well, I don't... It's been crazy to let me stay here, too. <laughs> I don't normally ask Soul of Nation podcast guests to pray us out, but we're in a moment where uh, I, too, am hopeful about this next generation of ours coming up, but we're in the middle of real danger and yet great opportunity at the same time. And we're going to have to get uh, prayed out of this situation. And as uh, uh, John Lewis and others have taught us, you often pray with your words, but also with your feet. And you've been doing both for a very long time. So could you just pray us out as a nation today in terms of uh, the grace and the conversion that we're going to need going forward. Gracious God, our mother and our father, we thank you for the opportunity to share the fellowship that comes from walking with fellow laborers in the faith. We pray today that you would give us the capacity to discern where you are working and give us the courage to go work where you would work. We pray, gracious God, that you would empower us for the living of these days and the facing of this hour. Help us not to lose our way or to lose our hope. Give us an alive optimism that is not despaired by the existential challenges that which we face. Give us, God, fresh courage and bold faith to not get weary in the midst of the difficulties of these days. Give us the capacity to love in spite of, to forgive, to be hopeful of those who speak evil in our midst and those who seek selfish ends at the expense of the greater populations. We pray, gracious God, for leadership at every level of our nation, from the classroom to the White House. Give us sensitive leadership. And Lord, we would not end this day without thanking you for the witnesses we have seen and known. We thank you, God, for the witness of Sojourners and Jim Wallace. We thank you, God, for all those who are aligned with a revelation of yourself that will bring a more complete world. Help us not to grow weary but to hold to your unchanging hand and keep us calm in the face of anxiousness. And may we find the pathway to fulfillment of your purpose and will in our lives through the one you sent, Jesus the Christ. 
we pray and ask. Amen. Thank you, dear brother, for joining us today. I enjoyed being here, Jim. To hear more from W. Franklin Richardson, follow him on Twitter at W. Richardson and read his book at witnesstograce.org, witnesstograce.org. For more Soul of a Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And follow me on Twitter if you would like at Jim Wallace. Blessings for the Soul of a Nation.